Hi, psychology nerds, and welcome to Why We Get Mad, a special series brought to you by the Psychology and Stuff podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, author of the book, Why We Get Mad. Now, my usual co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungess, is not here right now, but instead, I am joined by my friend and former student, Sammy Elger-Fieser. How's it going, Sammy? It is going great. How about you, Ryan? It's going okay. It is going okay. You appear to be recording from a closet. Is that true? This is true. I was inspired by Jenna Fisher in her office podcast, and then Donald Faison and the Scrubs podcast, and they all have kids, so they have to go into a closet to get some peace and quiet. Um, I have three cats, uh, so that's why I'm in the closet. (laughs) Got it. And I... If I am right, your cats are just right outside the closet, just pawing at it, trying to get in, like an episode of The Walking Dead right now. Is that a fair assumption? That is exactly what is happening. As a matter of fact, right before we started recording, I could hear someone scratching out there, and I had to text my boyfriend to come get one and remove it from the bedroom. (laughs) Is he out there now just scratching at the door trying to get in, too? For all I know, maybe he is. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. I've... I have not yet done a podcast or a class or anything from a closet. I, in, in all of this pandemic, I've somehow managed to do things just from my desk. So lucky you, you done any other interesting places? I did. I did a talk from my car, uh, where someone else was driving. I was, I, (laughs) good to know. I inadvertently double booked myself for both a road trip and a speaking engagement. And fortunately, our car has, is a hot spot, and so I said, could I do both? And so I, I did a talk on anger and politics. It was short, so it was like a, a panel, so I think I did like 10 minutes or 15 minutes um, from the car with the kids in the back watching uh, watching a movie, and um, I, yeah, so it was, it was fine. It was not ideal. You know what? Cars are louder than you think they are. That's what I learned from that. Like, you can really hear yeah. the... the the air all the little sounds the engine and everything yeah this is why you should probably just try to record in a closet yeah well next time i will you know it feels like that is sort of a rite of passage when it comes to podcasting in the era of covid is at some point doing an episode from a closet so i will uh i'm actually going to make this happen in in a future episode i'm going to try it out what if I discover that everything would have sounded better if i'd been doing that the entire time the acoustics are amazing in here Are you ready for our uh, our really awesome guest this week? Yes, I am so excited for this podcast. I've never really thought about anger in terms of history. So this is very different than anything I've really seen before. I'm excited. So my guest today is an associate professor of humanities and histories here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. He has a PhD in history from State University of New York at Buffalo His research and teaching interests include modern German and Japanese history and culture, science fiction and jazz, and he's published work on German political culture. He is an extraordinary teacher, having won the UWGB Founders Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2010 and the University of Wisconsin Board of Regents Teaching Excellence Award in 2014. He's been serving as Associate Provost for Academic Affairs for the last five years here at UW-Green Bay, but he took time to join us for this great conversation about whether or not we are angrier now than we once were. Please welcome Dr. Cliff Ganyard. All right, 
so Cliff, I want to start out by talking through um, kind of the backstory for why we're doing this. So it, it, it feels like forever ago because it was pre-pandemic, but I was doing a talk at uh, the Neville Museum as part of the, the steam engine series. And um, I get asked the, the question that I'm always asked that I never know how to answer, which is, are we angrier today than we once were? And I answered as, as best I could. Um, but I, afterwards, you and I were there, you were, you were in the audience, you and I were chatting and you said, you know, I've got some thoughts on that as a historian. And so I think at the time you even mentioned, maybe we could do a podcast on it. Here we are a year and a half later, and I'm going to ask you that same question. Um, what do you think? Are we angrier? How can we tell? I mean, my, my problem has always been, this is, it feels like an impossible question to answer. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, for that introduction and for uh thanks for having me on your podcast too this is really exciting to, to to be here i appreciate it it's a great question and it's one that's really difficult to answer as you just suggested even for historians um i'll give you my my quick answer to the first part of that question then we maybe we can talk a little bit about why it's so difficult right my my instinct has i think is true of most people is that uh is that we are angrier now uh, or maybe I should qualify that and say we're expressing our anger more openly than we used to. And, and I think we could go into that a, a little bit more, too. Um, but one of the reasons I say that is that I think it's really difficult to kind of chart um, the history of, of anger, for example. People have tried. Um, and there's a whole field of history that revolves around the history of emotions, Right. It's really interesting. It's a lesser known field. A lot of folks who delve into um, the history of emotion are, are either drawing on psychology uh, or are psychologists or psychiatrists themselves. One, one of my favorite historians, Peter Gay, for example, um, drew a lot of his own uh, kind of theoretical work from Sigmund Freud. And for a long time, uh, was really one of the greatest proponents of using Freudian analysis and historical uh, historical work. Um, and he did it very well. There are some, some obvious pitfalls when you start taking from one discipline and trying to apply them uh, to, a, there's a, a, to a, somebody else. Um, you know, there's a classic study, maybe you know it by Eric er Erickson, I think, Young Man Luther, I think where he tries to psychoanalyze Luther who had been dead for 500 years or 400 years and, right. you know, some problems there, but anyway, Peter Gay did a nice job and he tried to, to center his study of the 19th century bourgeoisie around kind of emotions, hatred, love, passion, these kinds of things and used it as kind of an entry point to look at social and cultural history. So it kind of worked, but, um, and I'm not a historian of emotions. I should put that out there, right? So I have even fewer tools to look at this than, <laughs> than maybe Peter Gated. Um, but I think it's inherently problematic because it's hard to tell, I think, what somebody else is actually feeling emotionally. Um, you know, if you have access to personal documents like a diary or a set of letters, personal letters where they say, I'm really angry. Okay, well, I mean, we can take that at, as the person, you know, uh, admitting that they're angry about something or they're in love or, you know, scared or, or whatever the emotion is. But I think when we interact publicly, many of us put on different masks uh, or what have you. We behave in different ways um, because we have to socially, right? I mean, we can't always... 
um, well, for lack of a better phrase, be honest um, with one another. It, it, civilization depends on us trying to get along, trying to control our emotions and, and so forth. Um, but there are, there are interesting ways to, to, um, to try and get at it. So, you know, we took a look at that article by Thomas Dixon um, where he tries to chart this. And, and one of the things he does is he takes a look at uh, the frequency of anger and hatred and a couple of other words in published documents. Um, and he uses Google documents to do this. And he kind of counts the number of times anger is used in a particular year and then graphs it. Um, and it's a really cool graph, right? It shows right. that there's actually this peak of anger in the late 18th century around 1780s. And you think about what's going on and okay, the enlightenment's going on American revolution, French revolution, Haitian revolution, Napoleon, there's war. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that people would be angry at this point. And it kind of levels off and goes down. And then more recently, you know, as we started the conversation, it shows this, this increase in anger again and the frequency of anger. Um, but there are some problems with that, right? So he's obviously only using documents that are available on Google. Um, he's only looking in English um, primarily. Otherwise, he'd have to think about other words to be searching for. Um, and different languages have different ways of expressing uh, anger. Uh, and they're largely, I mean, I didn't look closely at all of his sources, I guess, but, you know, a lot of that's public documents. So as we said, you know, it's not maybe not getting at that authentic emotion. It's just counting the number of times somebody talks about the word anger. So one of the things we know about the Enlightenment, for example, is that this is actually the birth of a lot of modern social sciences, right? And so you've, you've got a lot of the philosophers in the 18th century thinking about, you know, both physical anatomy and biology and being really critical about looking at that, but also trying to chart like emotions, right? <laughs> what do emotions look like? And so it makes perfect sense that people might be talking about anger, not because they're angry, but just because it's what they're studying. And so I think that throws some things off. Right. Yeah. So this article, which you sent me is really, really fascinating. And um, I, I read it when you sent it to me and I reread it this morning. It's titled, What is the History of Anger? A History of by Thomas Dixon. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because it, it, it tackles from a different perspective many of the things that I'm constantly thinking about, which is how do we define anger? How is maybe my definition as a psychologist different from other psychologists' uh, definition versus uh, other, other disciplines versus, frankly, the general public and how they perceive of emotions? And I think one of the things that you know, is, is caught up when you talk about the problems or the limitations of exploring anger this way one of them is simply that sometimes people don't know they're angry, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's, they're not writing about it. They're not sharing it because that's not how they think of themselves. They think of anger as being just the outward expression. I, and so they say, well, I'm not angry because I'm not yelling or screaming or hitting people mm -hmm. um, where what they're not necessarily realizing or thinking about is how they might be internalizing it, how they might be suppressing it uh, uh, and, and so on. And so, you know, I guess this is what I'm what I'm always struggling with is this idea that I want to know as much as anyone else how we rate currently compared to people 200 300 years ago or or 20 years ago 
but then all of the mechanisms we have have these limitations, you know, that they, they're, none of them are perfect. And so then it's a question of, well, can we, can we put together a bunch of imperfect ones uh, to try and get a, to try and capture it? Um, you know, and then if so, what would those imperfect ones be? Uh, you know, what are some of the, the metrics we can use? You know, you could look at crimes, particular types of crime, maybe you could look at, um, I mean, this is one of the, in this article is one of the more um, sort of thoughtful analyses I've seen as far as thinking about it in a way that I haven't necessarily thought of it. Um, you know, and so then it's like, well, okay, could, could we look at it that way? Could we put it together that way? Yeah, and I, I, I agree. And crime would be a good way to look at it, at least if you narrowed it down to particular kinds of crime, right? right. I mean, there's a whole class of, uh, of crimes that are related to hatred, hate crimes. And so we could take a look at, you know, the scale of that. I think there are some limitations to that too. But if we did that, you know, that would, I think, at least in some senses, uh, corroborate our, our sense uh, of that, that we are feeling more hatred and anger recently. You know, there have been numerous reports in the last uh, few months um, about hate crimes against Asian Americans, for example, have clearly gone up. Um, the number of anti-Semitic um, events and incidents has increased significantly over the last four or five years. Um, and similar things. And of course, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about Black Lives Matter and the debates around that. But just looking at some of those, um, those incidences related to um, ethnicity, race, um, potential hate crimes against those groups, we are seeing an increase um, in all of those. Uh, some of them, I think, significant. Some of them maybe not quite statistically significant. Um, depending on what you're looking at. And it's not just the United States, right? So this is demonstrable across the Western world, at least. Um, in Europe, there have been increases uh, in Germany, for example, of anti-Semitic incidents, um, which is really disturbing. But Britain and France have also seen similar uh, increases in, in those kinds of, of crimes. Uh, and so I, I think it does speak to you know, an increase in, in anger, or as I suggested a minute ago, the expression of anger. And I think that fits really well with your comment about how do we even know if we're angry or not? Yeah, and I'm thinking too that I have to imagine that, and I'm not a criminologist, but I have to imagine that some of this has to do with willingness to report um, and, and things like that, that, that you know, we, we may be seeing, I mean, I think we're seeing an increase in hate crimes for a lot of reasons, but one of one of that one piece of that that increase might be um, that people are reporting more and um, and that we're seeing or at least more than they did 30 years ago. Um, and so um, so that might be part of it, but certainly not all of it. Um, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is that the article you, you shared with me and some other conversations I've had with people really point to um, presidential politics as part of this equation. And specifically, uh, you know, a lot of, um, you know, anger in the age of Trump and things like that, that, but I guess, and I, and I believe that, and I think that there's a lot of this, a lot of that. That said, I think, uh, you know, I remember during the bush Kerry election, so I can't, 2004, I think, um, you know, a lot of discussion about how, you know, uh, 
using wedge issues to try and increase anger amongst different groups and how you know politics at the time was really being driven by a combination of anger and fear. And so in some ways, while a lot of the vitriol feels new uh, or new-ish, um, the anger feels like it's been there for a long time. Yeah, I completely agree. This is a really interesting point you brought up. I think there's a lot to be said for the, the character of our leaders and how the rest of us react to that. And I think your, your comment just now uh, is a good one. I think that under Trump's leadership, um, there was more expression of anger. Um, but I also think that you know, there was also a greater sense of, of fear um, among many Americans as well, that might be related to that. And I think we're too, it's too soon. I mean, we're, we've just, what's Biden's hundred days is tomorrow, I think, right? So we're right at, it's only three months in, but it, it does seem notable that there seems to be less expression of anger, less vitriol uh, in a lot of political discourse than there was a year ago. Um, it's not all gone. There's lots of controversies, debates, arguments, um, that are still going on, but it does seem to um, have uh, what mediated itself a little bit. It doesn't seem quite as intense um, as it was. But I think uh, your comment that you know the anger has always been there. I think it. I think it's a really good one, and I agree with you. Um, and one of the reasons I say that. So if we can just kind of t- uh, think about. You know, think about the Trump years and, and some of the, you know, the rise of the right, the so-called alt-right um, and so forth. Uh, a lot of scholars who have studied the far right have, have uh, kind of looked at this. And one of the bit debates that they look at is, well, what was the cause mm-hmm. of people turning to the alt-right? Why does the alt-right or the, the extreme right become more popular at given times? Um, and my sense is that historians would probably answer it's economics, right? And this is actually my own reaction, my own knee-jerk reaction. I study um, Nazi Germany, German history, and uh, the Great Depression features very strongly in the rise of Adolf Hitler to power. Uh, it's a very common story, and it, it, it uh, you know, it follows very easily. The Nazi party got very few, very little support up until 1928. They grew, it, it, but you know it was, uh, and it wasn't a small party, maybe a hundred thousand people. But um, in a population of 63 million, that's not really a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. But then the Great Depression hits. It, you know, support for the Nazis skyrockets, and in 1933, Adolf Hitler is suddenly chancellor. So there, there's clearly a relationship there. And that seemed to have happened more recently, right? And so 2008, the economic recession, 2010, the Euro crisis, and the right-wing parties started to to grow. uh, And a lot of people pointed, see, see, it's economics. But what we've also noticed is that um, more recently, as the economy has gotten better, the the anger, the the alt-right, the far-right has not actually died down that much. People are still supporting them. Uh, and in fact, we've seen lots and lots of uh, demonstrations, Charlottesville in 2017, more recently, the January 6th uh, insurrection in, in Washington, D.C., um, are, are expressions of some of this. Not everyone, uh, you know, we should be careful to say not everyone in, uh, you know, at the Capitol on January 6th 
um, participated in this, I think. But clearly there were individuals who were trying mm -hmm. to express their position. Uh, political scientists often come at this a, a slightly different way, and they point out that you know economics plays a role, absolutely, but it's really about culture. And what they'll often point to are uh, kind of continuous things like immigration. Um, and immigration, I, I think a lot of people get angry over it, I think is something that President Trump clearly played into with the, the border wall and those kinds of things. And he was able to, to, to raise a lot of anger uh, against other people, uh, immigrants, migrants, to his benefit. Um, but that's something that's been there for decades. You know, it's been changing over a period of decades. It's not a, a pinpoint moment. To me, what happens is, you know, the economic crisis um, is a catalyst to bring out this kind of smoldering anger that's, or concern, fear even, that's been sitting there for a long, long time. And would you, you know, thinking as a historian, if we were to look back at, at elections from the 30s and 40s, would you see, do you think, similar sorts of strategies of using fear and anger as a, a means of, of motivating voters? And do we have evidence of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so the one I just mentioned, right, the Nazis is the classic example, again, clearly using propaganda and fear to instill anger among people uh, to gain gain votes uh, and taking advantage of the economic situation to, to do that. Um, and it's actually really interesting, too, uh, because what we know about uh, the Nazis, for example, and, and their electoral politics, their strategy is that anti-Semitism didn't always play well to the German populace. And so they actually, in, in their, um, their political campaigns, they would frequently play down the anti-Semitic parts of their, of their party platform, of their ideology, and favor instead things like the economic crisis, class conflict, immigration, in fact. Um, you know, so that's related to anti-Semitism, but you couch it differently, right? Um, and, but a lot of it is, is to, to couch it in terms of, of fear, right? That you're going to lose your place. Um, somebody else is going to come in and take your job. You've lost your life savings. Why is that? Somebody else is to blame for that, right? And then you follow on and that creates a sense of anger. Well, why does that person get something that I want, right? Um, and you start to, to develop that anger over time. And the Nazis were able to exploit that very well. Now, I should say, I think most uh, most of our listeners will know that, you know, Hitler was not actually elected. He never won a majority of votes, but he gained enough votes that people in power themselves became afraid of the Nazis and tried to make use of that. Right. So that that's one example. But I think it's more broadly um, apparent as well. Um, you mentioned a couple of American elections uh, too. Uh, and we might point to, um, you know, other examples of this. I, I think we can see it throughout the 70s and 80s, certainly. Um, there, there's increasing tension after uh, 1960 or 1972, how you kind of debate these things between Democrats and Republicans. There's a clear shift to try and get more voters um, and so famously, the Republican Party embarks on the so-called Southern strategy, 
um, for example, to try and win more voters over. Um, but part and parcel of, of a lot of the, the rhetoric that goes into that, right, is to start attacking your opponent, starting to blame your opponent for things that aren't going well, to get people angry about, you know, what's going on. And Reagan famously in, in uh, his inaugural address says, uh, you know, something along the lines, I'm going to get the quote wrong, I know, um, government isn't the solution, government is the problem, right? And inherent in that, I think, is a call to anger, right? You've suffered, you've lost because of the 73 oil crisis or the 79, you know, economic recession, it's government's fault, and we should do something about it. Uh, and I think that continues on and becomes more and more strident, through the 80s and 90s up until more recent times. Um, so I do think that, that we see that as a strategy becoming more and more prominent. Um, but you can see it earlier too, uh, even in the 30s. And so, um, you know, we like to think of Roosevelt, I think, as, as this, you know, this great unifying force. He was such a great leader that all Americans just went behind him right? I mean, he was elected four times. My goodness, how could this be anything different? But in, in fact, there was a lot of controversy around his administration. He struggled to get legislation passed. Uh, Congress was dominated by Southern Democrats, uh, who at the time were, you know, there's a whole other story we can get into about the racial realignment of American politics. But in the 30s, Southern Democrats tended to be uh, well, Southerners, I mean, they tended to, to want to defend Jim Crow laws and uh, often held very racist attitudes and, and so forth. Uh, and they had a majority in Congress. And so they could control legislation as Congress is supposed to do. Uh, and so um, Roosevelt often found himself having to negotiate with these people beyond their good side. And if not, there's always that anger that the Southern Democrats could enlist to try and, and get people opposed to, to Roosevelt's legislative uh, approach. Um, and so I, I think it's a really, you know, American politics in some ways is a really interesting thing to delve into and try to understand how people play off of one another. So in this series of the, the show that I'm doing on anger right now, I, I did an interview with a, another anger researcher and asked him the same question. Are we angrier now than we, we used to be? And he said something really interesting that I want to throw out to. He essentially said, well, you know what? We've, we've got, we have all of these groups that have been historically marginalized and are currently marginalized that have had good reason to be angry for hundreds of years. And more recently have essentially, and I'm paraphrasing all of this, by the way, but more recently have had opportunities to express that anger in ways that they, that they weren't able to before. And, you know, and I, I wonder about that as being an explanation here. I mean, you mentioned Black Lives Matter before. I think we could add to it things like Me Too movement and, and March, for, March for Women and a host of, I mean, I would argue that even when peaceful the civil rights movements throughout history have been motivated by anger at, at the heart of it. And, and so wondering, you know, to what degree does that play a role in what we're perceiving as more anger currently? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I, I'd agree with your colleague, I think probably 100% that that's the case. 
Um, and so a couple of things come to mind, right? I think your, your last comment, thinking about civil rights and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and being motivated by anger, I think you're absolutely right. How could he not have been motivated by anger, right? And yet he had such a, such a, a calm demeanor that I think few of us would point at Martin Luther King Jr. and say he's really angry. Right? So as we started our conversation off, how do you even tell what anger actually looks like? And we tend to look at violent expressions as anger, and yet peaceful demonstrations could also be expressions of anger, I think. The flip side to that, uh, I think, is that you know something like the civil rights movement did, of course, uh, produce its violent tendency. So we think of like the Black Panthers, um, uh, you know, a militant movement that set out and said, okay, politics isn't working. We need to do something else about it. Um, and then we get those violent uh, expressions. But in some ways, this is going to sound weird, but in some ways, that's more of a rational, less emotional response. We tried it this way. It's not working. We need to do it this other way. Um, which is also, you know, the case of early feminists. And so the feminist movement went on for a long time. And then you get the suffragettes and Emmeline Pankhurst in 1913, chaining themselves to the building, throwing themselves in front of the king's horse and those kinds of, of violent expressions. The other point, though, I think, you know, to get back to the main point, you said um, new social media is something new in the last couple of decades. The Internet depending on how you date it, is about 30 years old, right? Uh, Facebook is what, probably 15 or 16 years old now, Twitter a decade, maybe something like that. And the other's much younger. And so uh, there are all of these new things, new ways to express ourselves, to express our feelings. I, I think we are encouraged to do that. Um, you know, Facebook early on was mostly friends. And so it was kind of a safe space, I think, to say, wow, I'm really upset about this or wow, I'm really happy about this. But as our, 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 our friend groups, right, um, our circle of people that we interact with on social media expanded, then that also changed, I think. And suddenly we were expressing anger and love or whatever to, to people we never would have before, which I think in itself is really interesting. Um, and, and I think, and it, and these things, the social media has often actually played a very interesting role um, in our public lives. So, you know, the Arab Spring in 2011 is a classic example. Suddenly out of nowhere, it seemed at the time, you know, revolutionaries in Northern Africa were using Facebook to organize protests and rebellions and uh, all of these kinds of things. And uh, I think from that moment on, people suddenly realized just how powerful um, social media has become. And of course, President Trump uh, used it very skillfully, you know, I have to admit, mm -hmm. uh, to rile up this anger and keep the blood boiling in his followers so that he could keep this momentum, momentum going. But the true is, it's true also of, of opponents of, of Trump and the right wing and others, that they're also able to use social media. Um, and so the murder of George Floyd, for example, it, it's been commonly commented on the last month or two with the, the trial of Derek Chauvin, that if that young woman hadn't been there video recording that episode, the result of that trial almost certainly would have been very different. But the fact that she could do that, upload it, and that it went viral 
uh, played an enormous role, I think, in Black Lives Matter. Uh, and the fact that something like Black Lives Matter wasn't just confined to the United States, but spread across the world and had an enormous impact in places like Great Britain, where BLM protesters started tearing down uh, you know, statues of colonial, uh, colonial imperialists uh, is, is incredibly fascinating to me. Um, but again, you know, to go back to kind of the theme of a lot of our discussion here is, as you've suggested, the anger was there already. People had a reason to be angry, but it's the way that we're able to express it and the moments when we choose to express it, I think that have changed. Mm -hmm. And even harness it for, for movements like this that, the, that, and to essentially organize it into to something more meaningful has also changed using all those mechanisms you described. Yeah, so, absolutely. And just maybe to, sorry, maybe yeah, just to, you know, to have a, a less angry attitude, although we could talk about this too. I'm thinking about um, Greta Thunberg's skull strike, uh, you know, for the climate uh, and her, her, her effort to organize a global movement of students to skip out of school on Fridays to protest uh, climate was largely a peaceful movement, it, actually an incredibly peaceful movement, but uh, done entirely through social media. But then again, too, I think we could point to Greta, and even though she ha has a very calm demeanor, is very well-spoken for a young woman, I think that, that came out wrong, very well-spoken, period. But right. uh, given her experience, um, you know, I, I think very impressive. Um, and yet I think we could say she's really angry too, right. uh, with reason. Well, and that is the perfect segue here because she, there is an ad that my kids have seen uh, for a documentary about her where she says, I want you to panic. Mm -hmm. And my kids have brought it to my attention many times, said Greta wants us to panic. And, um, and I said, good, she, she should. But I, I think this is a nice segue into actually something you wanted to talk about for, beforehand, which is Yoda of all things. And, um, and, uh, and his quote um, about fear and anger um, and the relationship there, because Greta doesn't just want us to be mad, she wants us to be scared. Um, and so say more about what you were mentioned to me off air before about, uh, about fear and anger. Yeah, so the great Jedi philosopher Yoda, uh, you know, when he, he meets Anakin Skywalker for the first time, he, he says something like, I sense much fear in you, young Skywalker, uh, and then goes on to explain why this is a problem. And his, his kind of pop psychology, right, is fear leads to anger, anger leads to hatred, hatred leads to suffering. Uh, and it's actually a beautiful setup. Say what you will about you know, the, the, the various prequel movies, but if you think about Darth Vader's arc, that's exactly what happens, right? He mm -hmm. starts off very fearful, he turns to anger, hatred, and in the end, trapped in his armor, he, you know, we could imagine that he's suffering. And so it, it's perhaps an oversimplification. Nevertheless, this connection between fear and anger, I, I think it's legitimate. In fact, I'd say the whole sequence is legitimate, at least to some extent. And I'm sure you as a psychologist, Ryan, could, you know, delve into where it is and where it isn't. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of people's expression of anger is very closely tied to fear, um, that people become angry uh, often, not always, but often because they're afraid that something is happening or will happen. Um, we mentioned immigration uh, a little while ago, for example, and I think, and a lot of scholars agree with this too, that a lot of the anger 
that is expressed over immigration, um, migration, uh, whether legal or illegal. Um, frankly, a lot of the racist concerns about the declining population of, of whites uh, in the Western world, this idea that whites will someday be a minority population, for example, this is clearly driven by fear. It's, mm -hmm. it's a fear that they will lose their position in society in one way or another. That, and that could be a number of things, that they'll lose economic power that they'll lose political power because now there'll be somebody else right. who is in the majority um, or some of the more strident fears. I think that, you know, if people, uh, people of color, people of other ethnicities um, are the dominant group in society, that they'll turn on white people, that they'll take out revenge, um, you know, for what had been done against them previously. Right. So you'd mentioned, Ryan, that, that African-Americans, for example, have a long history, a long set of reasons for being angry. Some white people who hold to this are very afraid that those African-Americans would turn and impose slavery punishment on, on whites. There's no evidence that this would happen. There's no evidence that African-Americans want to do this in any way. There's no evidence that people would lose political rights or power, economic influence, um, you know, when this, this kind of demographic shift happens. Um, but the fear that it might drives this anger. The assumptions that people make about other people's motivations, I think, or what might happen in 30, 40, 50 years from now, um, you know, comes back and, and, and causes this anger, uh, I think. Um, and I've mentioned Nazi Germany a couple of times, and I think it applies there too, um, and in the New Deal and in a number of other places, that with the Great Depression, people became very afraid. Um, they lost their jobs. They lost their life savings. They, their marriages broke up. Um, all kinds of problems People were afraid of what was going to happen. Are we going to fall into the working class? Are we going to lose our homes? Are we going to, you know, whatever it is. Um, and the Nazis and others came up with very simple answers to that. You see, it's not your fault, they might say, but it is the Jews uh, or it's the capitalists or it's the Bolsheviks who have done this to you. Um, and they turn, were able to turn that fear then into anger. What? The Bolsheviks? How dare they try to take away my property? I'll get them. Um, and this is something I'm very interested in. I haven't taken it too far. As I said at the beginning of our talk, I'm not actually an historian of emotions, but I do see a really interesting connection uh, between these, these two emotional attitudes, these two feelings. Right. Yeah, and it, this is, um, I mean, this has been absolutely fascinating, Cliff, and I hate that we have to finish up, but I, I um, you know, I've been, uh, this is a, a, a something that is said to me a lot on, on social media, a lot of questions about anger being a quote-unquote secondary emotion, and my answer is always, I think it sometimes is, and when it is, I think it's the exact description you just Put forward, right? It's it's secondary to to fear, which is at the core of it. Now, I don't always think that's the case. I think sometimes we just get pure anger, but I think a lot of what you're describing is is right on, which is people are deep down they're scared of something happening, and instead of feeling that fear, they get angry 
uh, about about the prospect of it happening because anger is a more empowering emotion than fear. Mm-hmm. Fear makes us feel vulnerable. So, as we as we finish up, what final thoughts do you have? Uh, well, I think this has been a great discussion, uh, Ryan. I really appreciate you having me on on uh, on the show. Uh, you know, I, I think for final thoughts, what I would take from this is that we really need to be more careful about how we assess other people. Um, you know, a lot of what we've talked about actually has been um, the difficulty of trying to assess how people are feeling and what their motivations are. Are people really angry? How do we know that they're angry? What is a true and authentic expression of anger? Or are there other things at its root, like fear, um, for example? And, uh, you know, I, I think that in some ways that's disappointing, right? Because we'd like to have good answers come out of our conversations. But the truth is, you know, in, in trying to come to terms with some of these things, things become more complicated and, and more difficult to assess. And I think we really need to, to um, approach that uh, truthfully and authentically and try to understand uh, what other people are, are feeling and doing better than simply reacting to what they're feeling and doing. Oh, that is the perfect way to finish. Thank you so, so much, Cliff, for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it. I'm going to insist uh, that we can do this again sometime because that this has been really fun and really interesting for me. Absolutely, Ryan. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Now we are going to take a question from TikTok. So someone has written in, I was raised in an only happy family. Now I really struggle to know ways to express my anger in healthy ways. So what are some ways that people can express their anger in a healthy way if they weren't taught that in their family? Yeah, that's it. I love this question and I was really, really happy to get it. So, you know, because you know, when you think about like what happy homes are, and I I think for the record, I want to be clear, this person put happy homes in quotes as if to say, like, I I can only, um, you know, I I was never allowed to show things other than happiness. And, and I think that what happens when we're raised in that kind of environment where, where negative quote unquote emotions are sort of shamed or minimized or discouraged is that it becomes really, really hard as adults um, or even as adolescents to, to just share how we're really feeling. Um, if there's a golden rule of emotional expression, it's that um, we tend to take on the emotional expressions of our caregivers. We express our feelings the way our caregivers, usually our parents express them. So if mom and dad yell, then we tend to yell. If mom and dad uh, suppress, then we tend to suppress. And if mom and dad really minimize um, expressions of anger or expression, any expressions, <laughs> if we're not allowed to share those things, then it's, we learn not to, and we get uncomfortable uh, doing it. So what are some healthy expressions? Um, I would say, um, you know, one, there's, there's infinite ways that we can express our anger. We, we, we tend to think that the only thing there is is some sort of aggressive, aggressive, you know, verbal or physical aggressive act. But the truth is we can channel our anger into all sorts of, of different approaches. We can express it 
um, uh, in uh, assertive ways. We can uh, channel it into art and music. Mm-hmm. Um, we can protest. We can do all sorts of things with our anger that doesn't necessarily include, you know, yelling and screaming. Right. What would you say to those people that maybe had parents or caregivers that didn't teach them those skills and they're now realizing this is a full-grown adult and trying to figure out how do I unlearn and relearn all these habits? So they're healthy habits now. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, I'm going to start by saying it's really hard, right? It's, it's really hard to unlearn habits that you spent a lifetime learning. And so people should know that going into it, that it's not impossible. It's just really, really challenging. One of the best things that I can say is, is kind of like anything. Um, one of the things you have to do is a be intentional about it and b be willing to step out of your comfort zone a little bit and, and really say, and I'm going to give an example. So on Friday, Sammy, I don't know if you've watched this movie yet, but on Friday, I, with my kids, watched the movie, The Mitchells versus The Machines, I think it's called. Have you seen ads for it on Netflix? I have seen ads for that. I actually think I watched that. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, it's, I thought it was really touching and really sweet. And now here's the thing. I am a 45 year old counseling (laughs) psychologist. I was, I, I should, who, who studies emotion specifically, like I should be good at expressing my emotions. I was also, I, w- I won't say my negative emotions were shamed when I was growing up by any means, but I learned that that men in particular didn't cry, right? So it's really hard for me to sort of be vulnerable that way and uh, express my emotions that way. And so that movie did make me tear up quite a bit though. And in the past, when that's happened, I would try and find ways to minimize it. I would try and find ways to just sort of hide the fact that I was crying from my wife and kids. I would, um, you know, either like just sort of wipe the tears away or just mm-hmm. try not to say anything, whatever. Um, this time I just decided, no, it's okay. They can deal. And it was really, really hard. But the, the funny thing is that my son noticed and he's like, are you crying? And I said, yes. And he, he didn't really say much after that. I think he was a little bit surprised. Um, mm-hmm. I think he was, um, he's used to, I mean, truthfully in the past, we've all kind of made fun of their mom for crying during lots and lots of movies. And so this time I also made clear we weren't going to do that, you know, that I wasn't <laughs> part of that. And so not the first time you cry in front of your kids, have them roast you for it. Right. And so, well, no, but I wanted to make sure, cause Tina also cried during the movie. I wanted to make sure they didn't make fun of her either, you know, as, as doing that, because then it also sort of genders things in ways that I'm not comfortable with. So, but it, it took two things. One, that intentionality, being willing to say, I'm, I, I'm doing this. And then two, um, being willing to sort of wallow in that discomfort for a little bit. And, and, you know, there's lots of examples of when human beings do this, right? We, we oftentimes, when, when we decide we're going to start exercising for the first time, we understand that it's going to be uncomfortable for us and, and we do it, right? When we decide we're going to start eating healthier, like we understand that that means that we're going to wallow in some discomfort. This is just right. another example of that. Yeah, then that's something I talk about with my students too. When my students are having a hard time or they 
their anger or expressing one of those bad emotions that you mentioned, um, I try to almost set a time limit with them because oftentimes their feelings are justified. You know, you deserve to feel angry about this because there was injustice. So how about you be mad about it for the next 15 minutes and then we try to move on or we try to talk about it after that. But to get, allow them that time maybe to process those emotions. Yeah, I, I think that's a great, great way to handle it. I like the idea of kind of giving people that space to feel what they need or want to feel. And then, uh, and then being able to regroup uh, afterwards, or at least check in afterwards and say, okay, you know what, it's now is not a good time maybe to talk about it. Maybe you need a little bit of space. We're going to regroup later on. Um, and I'll check in. And if you're still not ready, then we'll wait a little longer, you know? Um, right. That way you don't lose the whole day. It doesn't spiral out of control. Then you kind of keep it in check and you let yourself have those emotions because it's, you have to feel them. There's a reason that they're appearing inside of you. You need to express them and feel them all the way. Right. Exactly. So I think that is all the time we've got for this week. You can find me and ask questions at Anger Professor on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, You can visit my website, alltheragescience.com to learn more about me or the book. Uh, Yeah, check it out. Anything to add, Sammy? I think that's all, folks. Awesome. Why We Get Mad is a special series from Psychology and Stuff and a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Sallet and our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlees. Special thanks to my guest, Cliff Ganyard. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwpd.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with Sammy Alger-Beezer. Keep being amazing.